The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Good morning. If you're part of the Music Row or Cool Springs locations, you may now go to the button on the website to hear your location's scripture reading and sermon. And if you're part of the Old Hickory Boulevard location, you can stay right here. Today's scripture reading comes from Luke 12, 32 through 34. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in heaven that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Thanks, Mallory. Hello, everybody. Uh, Good morning, good afternoon, good whenever it is that that you're listening to this. Uh, Grateful to be with you, grateful to still be able to do this in these circumstances that remain not ideal according to this pastor. Uh, I still miss you, we still miss you, and it's just getting worse uh, week after week after week. Uh, And I hope and I trust that what that means is that our reunion together, whenever that happens, uh, is going to be even better and even richer than uh, we can imagine it. I cannot wait uh, to see you Uh, again. And I hope that, God willing, that will be sooner rather than later. Uh, We are in a series right now, uh, and it's called Consolation of Christ. And this is our pastoral response to the season that we're in as a church and uh, as a nation and as the world. And uh, today we're going to look at what Jesus says about provision Uh, But I also want to tell you about next Sunday. Next Sunday will be the first ever sermon by Micah Edmondson to the Christ Presbyterian community. And of course, it'll be on live stream. But Micah uh, is going to be the planting and then lead pastor of Christ Presbyterian's fourth congregation and location in the city of Nashville. We're not sure exactly where Uh, Micah is going to plant in our city just yet, but what we do know is that this is going to be an explicitly cross-cultural and multi-ethnic effort, and I want to encourage you, if you know anybody in Nashville who does not have a church and who would likely to be drawn toward considering a cross-cultural effort in uh, Nashville, uh, to please encourage them to dial in next Sunday for the live stream to, to start getting to know Micah. He's a wonderful leader. Uh, he's a wonderful pastor. He's married to Christina, who's also a wonderful leader. Uh, and uh, they have two daughters, and we can't wait for them to join our community. Uh, but now let's just uh, turn our attention to uh, the scripture in front of us from Luke chapter 12. And you might have been thinking as Mallory was reading this text, uh, is my church tone deaf? Why on earth would we even come remotely uh, near to the subject of generosity in this environment where there is so much 
financial instability and so much pressure around the subject of resources. And uh, I get it. Uh, I was in New York City in 2008 when Wall Street crashed. And in that experience, Patty and I lost over half of our life savings in just a matter of a couple of weeks. And I can remember during that season uh, actually being haunted by scripture, specifically those scriptures that, that say to those who have a steady income, which I still had an income even though we'd lost so much of our life savings, uh, to those who have an income, for us, uh, we understood the scriptures as saying 10% of your income goes to your church community and then more than that goes to the poor and to those in need. I actually, if I'm being transparent, especially during that season uh, and during the season we're in right now, have felt and do feel vulnerable, uh, scared, haunted by scriptures especially that call the people of God toward generosity. Now, Patty and I in 2008, and, and Patty and I right now, uh, we stayed with our plan, uh, even against that fear. We're staying with our plan, even against that fear. And uh, we look back at 2008, we have absolutely no regrets. We actually felt like there was a part of our hearts that was enlarged uh, as our resources were diminished. Our accounts got smaller, but God felt bigger. And we believe there was a direct relationship between the two, a cause-effect relationship even. Now, this text in front of us is especially relevant for a time that feels like a time of relative scarcity for us because the disciples who were Jesus' audience in this teaching were working class people. Money was always tight for them. They lived hand to mouth every single day. If you were the breadwinner in a working class home in that time, if you got sick, if you got injured, uh, if you died, your family would have been left destitute. And so if this teaching applies to them under those circumstances, uh, I'm asking myself, don't these sorts of teachings apply to me also in my circumstances? Because what looks like recession and feels like recession to me would actually look like wealth and flourishing financially to them. Me at my lowest adult financial situation over the course of my years as an adult would look like riches to the disciples who were the recipients of this teaching. And so what I want to do is try to look at the subject of provision through the eyes of the disciples or those who might have felt like the disciples when they received this teaching from Jesus. First, I want to talk about why we are reluctant to share. And then secondly, why it's still nonetheless important to share. And then finally, the fact that our true share is immeasurable. So let's start with this one. Why are we so reluctant to share? Here's a painful truth about American Christians 
in their prosperity. In their prosperity, American Christians, reports and statistics and surveys tell us, 50% of those identifying as Christian in America give nothing. Nothing. Nothing to the cause of Christ, nothing to those in need, nothing. 50%. And those same surveys tell us that only 10% of those who identify as Christians in America give 10% of their increase away to the causes of Christ and his kingdom and to the poor. I want to suggest the reason why this is true. Yes, it's because we're disobedient, but it's also because we're scared. We're scared. Jesus understood that. He, he introduces his teaching with these famous words from his own mouth, fear not, little flock. Fear not. Okay, now I'm going to tell you something that's going to scare you. I'm going to call you something that, <laughs> to something that's going to scare you. So first, fear not. You realize that Jesus said, do not fear, 365 times in the Bible. I, I don't know if that was intentional. I don't know if he was thinking, well, that's one for every day of the year. Some people say that. We don't know. But 365 times is a lot of times. It's actually the most repeated command in all of the Bible, is not to fear. And he always gives us a reason why we need not fear. And he gives us one here. Because it is your father's good pleasure to give you the whole kingdom. It's his pleasure. He's pleased. He's happy. He laughs about the notion of being able to give you everything that belongs to him. The human condition is so broken and, and the human perspective is so incongruent because we're so broken with the perspective of God on these things that we actually feel poor when we're not poor. We feel poor even when we are actually wealthy. And because of this, we're reluctant to share. If, if you go Earlier in this teaching, several verses earlier, there's a parable that Jesus teaches called the parable of the rich fool. And this man was a fool because he was rich, but he acted like he was poor. He was positioned to share generously by virtue of the resources that had been entrusted to him. And yet he had been somehow self-deceived into believing that he could not afford to share. And it says that he, he, he gives a speech to his own soul, to his own, the, the, the Greek word is suke, which we get our word psyche or you know, psychological. He speaks to his own psyche. He says to his own soul, soul, you finally have the money that you've always hoped and wished you could have. You finally hit your number. And so you can relax. And he hoards it. He actually builds a barn to store his resources in that barn. Looking out for number one. But looking out for number one and one only. His belief is that I don't have enough. I can't afford to share. 
Now, Jonathan Edwards has a theory, especially about those who identify as Christians, who have access to the teaching of Jesus about generosity, who say, I can't afford to do what God says around generosity. And Edwards says, you, you actually can. What you really mean is that you can't afford to do what God calls you to do and be who God calls you to be around the subject of generosity and do everything else and have everything else that you want. That's what he says. If I can afford a device with which to view this service, if I can afford the internet service that allows me to participate in this service, if I can afford more than two outfits, my own pair of shoes, if I have access to clean water, if I have access to health care, if I have access to three meals a day, then I am rich. I'm rich. Over half of the world's population lives on less than $2.50 per day. That's the present global human reality. And it's for reasons like this that Jesus says words like this in verse 15. Watch out. In other words, examine yourself, examine your own heart, examine your own thinking around resources. Because greed and this idea that, that I can be relatively wealthy and yet I cannot afford to share. It's a silent killer. It's a disease that everybody thinks the rest of the world has, but nobody thinks that they have the disease. Everybody thinks and feels on some level like they are living in scarcity, according to Jesus's teaching. Now, the rich fool is blind to how wealthy he is, and as such, he is blind to how able he is and how free he is to be open-handed toward the causes of Christ and toward people in need. He, he's like Ebenezer Scrooge. He's stuck. He's stuck. You know, the disciples would look at me and say, I'm rich. I look at CEOs and I say, well, no, I'm not rich. They're rich. And then CEOs say, well, I'm not rich. LeBron James is rich. And then LeBron James says, I'm not rich. Michael Bloomberg is rich. And then Michael Bloomberg says, I'm not rich. Jeff Bezos is rich. Now, Rockefeller, when he was, you know, the Jeff Bezos of his time, was once asked by a journalist, how much money is going to be enough for you? And he says, at any given time, the answer to that question is one more dollar. We never think that we have what we need. And this is why we feel poor even in our wealth. It's because we define our wants as needs. It's really curious that Jesus says to, to, to his disciples, remember his working class disciples who lived hand to mouth, for whom the money was tight all the time. He says to them, sell your possessions and give to the needy, verse 33. Now there's, there's a subtle message in there. You give to the needy means you're not one of them. 
working class people. You are not among the needy. That's, that's a message that's tucked into his statement. For people whose daily reality was, was to live on the daily bread that they had and nothing else. Jesus says in the midst of this teaching, don't be anxious about your life. Because your life, this is important, your life is more than food. Your life is more than clothing. In other words, even those things that most human beings regard as their basic needs are not their ultimate need. You know, Johnny Erickson Tata uh, tells a story about a visit that she and some members of her team with Johnny and friends had to a small local church in Ghana. Ghana is one of the most impoverished, materially impoverished places in the world. And at the beginning of the, the church service, a, a, a woman stood up to welcome uh, the, their American friends who were visiting and here's how she welcomed them. Welcome our American friends to Ghana, where we have joy because we need Jesus more. She's tapping in to what Jesus is saying here. The other thing that... Uh, that Johnny said about that experience, the little church in Ghana, is that when it came time for the offering in the worship service, it was like a giving party. It was the most celebrated moment of the entire worship service by people who had close to nothing. What these dear people, these dear brothers and sisters in Christ in Ghana who can serve as our teachers on these things show us is that there is a way to tap in to what verse 33 talks about a treasure that is available that no thief can steal and that no moth can eat and that creates a scenario where we need no longer fear Jim Elliott, the martyred missionary, said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. Why is it important to share? That's our second question. It's important to share because it is the cure to our sickness around resources, around the notion of sharing, around the false idea that we can't afford to be open-handed with anybody but ourselves, and that we can't afford to, do, to, to, to spend on anyone but ourselves, like the rich man with the barn full of provisions in his backyard. The cure for the rich man's disease is belief, belief that there is a treasure that is already there 
stored up, prepared, waiting in heaven. It's, it, it's called by scripture the inheritance that God the Father has passed on to his children who have placed their faith in their elder brother, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is also their savior. But it's interesting here. Jesus says that the best way to provide for yourself, that's the language he uses explicitly. He says, provide for yourselves with money bags that don't grow old, with a treasure in heaven that does not fail. He's saying the best way to provide for yourself is to be a provider to the causes of Christ and a provider to those who have greater need than you do. How is that providing for ourselves? Well, this this term money bags harkens back to the storehouse teaching in Malachi chapter 3 in the Old Testament. Malachi was an Old Testament prophet. Where Malachi said, bring the full tithe or the full tenth into the storehouse, into the community of faith, into the local congregation. Now, Jesus reaffirmed this teaching in a conversation he was having with some Pharisees who brought their full tithes, but because of their full tithe, they said, I, don't, I can't afford anymore to take care of the needy, uh, who specifically were their, their own parents. I'm giving the 10% to God, so I can't afford to take care of my parents. And Jesus said, no, it's, it's both and. It's not either or. This is not binary here. He says, you should have done the former. Uh, give to your local congregation while not neglecting the latter. Taking care of the, the most vulnerable people in front of you. In their case, their own aging parents. That's how you can provide for yourself, Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, by being open-handed. Because the more open-handed you are and the smaller your accounts get, the bigger God will feel and the richer you will truly be. Now, how much? What's the amount? Well, for the very wealthy Zacchaeus, it was 50%. For the middle-class Pharisees, it was 10% of what they, 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 they gained through gainful employment. And then they gave another 10%, uh, which was not obligatory. It was voluntary um, uh, on everything that they bought. The poor widow gave 100%. She She gave 100% of all she had. Now, it would have been perfectly legitimate for the poor widow to give nothing. Because 10% of zero is zero. If you've got zero income, 10% of zero is zero. That's why on our website, we have a a, a button that says, uh, give help, get help. There are those who are positioned to give. There are those who are in a position uh, to receive. And both have a ministry to one another. You know, we, we, we wrongly think that, that being on the giving side is, is, is the only side of ministry, whereas the receiving is actually a ministry as well. Uh, receiving humbly is a service to the body of Christ for those who are in a position uh, 
where they need to receive. The principle of generosity for those who have gainful income, who have uh, uh, other resources from which they're able to share, I think the best principle is to live toward the bottom of your income bracket as opposed to the middle or the top. Jesus isn't telling everybody to give away everything they have and sell all their possessions. That was a unique instruction to a specific group of people. It was a unique instruction to a specific man, the rich young ruler, whose money had him around the neck. He thought he couldn't live without his money, but Jesus said, no, you can't live with your money. That's why I'm saying, let it all go and come follow me. Those are unique, specific instructions to specific people. God wants his people to, to, to live in every realm of society and to work at every level of the org chart. He wants, he wants, uh, wants lower-income uh, workers who are part of the body of Christ, and he wants multimillionaires who are part of the body of Christ in every circle of human interaction and of human vocation and of neighborhoods so that the whole world has access to the light that they bring as followers of Christ. Solomon, in, in our text last week, remember he lived in splendor, whereas the poor widow did not live in splendor. Both had their place in the kingdom of God, but I think a good principle is, is to give in such a way that you're living toward the bottom of your bracket. Paul says in 1 Timothy 6 to a young pastor to, to, to tell those who are rich in your community, those who have wealth, those who have means, to be generous. Because if they don't, their love of money, their love of money is going to cause some of them to wander away from the faith and it's going to pierce them with many griefs. Because as Jesus says, it's impossible to simultaneously love money and love God. You can have money and love God, but you can't love money and love God. You know, the source of, of this grief that, that Paul is talking about that comes from greed is that eventually we're all going to discover that, that, that money is actually one of the worst providers. Money is not a good provider for what we ultimately need. Now, now think about our, our general financial vocabulary. Where do we put our money? We put it in a safe. What do we call our stocks and our bonds? We call them securities. What do we call the sum of our wealth, our net worth? These are all daddy words. These are all daddy responsibilities. It's daddy's job to keep you safe. It's daddy's job to keep you secure. It's daddy's job to remind you every single day what you are worth. And it has nothing to do with your financial bottom line. It's father language. Those who love money want money to be their father. Those who love money want money to father them. We see this in Luke chapter 15 in the famous prodigal son story where he says to his wealthy father, I want my inheritance now. That's another way of saying, I wish you out of my life. I wish, 
wish you were already dead so I could have it, but since you're not dead, can you just give it to me so I can go live my own life? And the father did. He gave half of his resources to one of his two sons, and the son went out, spent it all on wild living, uh, living what he thought would be the dream. I've got all of the father's resources at my disposal without the father, and it left him alone, it left him friendless, and it left him hurting. The message in there is money will eventually abandon you if you love it. It's actually abandoning a lot of us right now as we just take a look at our 401k and retirement accounts for those of us who have those. Even the richest man in the world, Jeff Bezos, is going to die with no money. He's going to, to transition into the next world with nothing. The wealthy man Job recognized this when he lost everything in a single day. He said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I will depart. That's our future. Money is not going to be there for us. But family will. Money will also abandon us emotionally when we have it, if we love it. There's this interview that the actor Brad Pitt did with Rolling Stone magazine. This is, a, this is such a strong statement that he made. Well into his career, peak of his success, he says this, all these things that are supposed to seem important to us, the car, the condo, are versions of success. But if that's the case, why is the general feeling out there reflecting more impotence and isolation and desperation and loneliness? We've got to find something else because we are heading for a dead end, a numbing of the soul, a complete atrophy of the spiritual being. I am the guy who's got everything. But I'm telling you, once you get everything, then you're just left with yourself. It doesn't help you sleep any better. It sounds a lot like the book of Ecclesiastes, where you have a man of great wealth, of great power, living in great luxury, and he says, it's all vapor. It's all going to vaporize, and therefore it's unsatisfying. Lonely at the top. Here's the message. You already have a provider. At the core of every tight fist, at the core of every Scrooge-like posture toward the notion of sharing is amnesia, unbelief, disbelief that we have a father. We have a provider. And that with him, we are safe, we are secure, and we have worth. And a moth can't eat it, and a thief can't steal it in ways that moths and thieves can steal other versions of wealth. Amnesia that I am an adopted heir is at the core of what makes me scared to share. 
He says, it's your father's pleasure to give you the kingdom. There's so much there. His pleasure. How much do we doubt how pleased God says he is in blessing us? You know, it it goes all the way back to the serpent's lie. Comes to Eve and said, did God really say that you can't eat? From the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Did he really say that? That sounds so limiting. Sounds like he's trying to hold you back. It it sounds like he's trying to destroy your joy. And limit your freedom. The true story was that God gave the whole world to Adam and Eve. Here's my garden. Here are the plants, the animals. Enjoy it all. Enjoy each other and enjoy it all. Give names to the plants and animals. Cultivate it. In the garden of paradise, there was one no. Do not eat this fruit. And the reason why was that if you eat it, you'll surely die. It was a protective no. Good fathers give protective no's to their children all the time. And with that one protective no were a billion yeses. And yet the serpent has this crafty way of getting the people that God loves to fixate on restrictions and then reinterpret those restrictions as things that aren't good for us when in fact they are good for us. It is his pleasure to give to you. In Luke chapter 11, Jesus says, you who are evil, he's so cavalier using those words, hey, you, you're evil, you who are evil, You know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to you? He wants to. You know, the prophet Jonah we were talking about in a a recent staff prayer gathering over Zoom. Jonah didn't think at the time that God's gifts to him were good. There's several places in the book of Jonah where it says that the Lord provided something for Jonah. And what did the Lord provide? The Lord provided a storm. The Lord provided a scorching wind. The the Lord provided a worm to eat the plant that was providing shade for Jonah. The Lord provided a fish to swallow Jonah whole. One of our staff members commented on the trauma of being inside the fish. It was uh, Emily Etchison who, who read scripture for us a couple weeks ago on the live stream and Emily said that isn't it striking that in Jonah chapter 2 where he's inside the belly of the fish where it's dark it's foul it's slimy uh, the digestive acids are, are, are covering his body he's isolated and yet he recognizes there that that it's in the belly of the fish that his deepest need is being met because there's one thing that he hasn't lost There's one thing that did follow him into the fish. And it was the one thing that he needed. The presence of God. And so in Jonah chapter 2, we get a prayer. And in that prayer, Jonah, who's awakened to his greatest need, says the famous words, Lord, those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. That's what money is when we fall in love with it. It's an idol. 
That's what money is when, when we want money more than we want God as our Father. When we want money to provide our, our ultimate safety and security and worth. We're clinging to a worthless idols. Do you know that money will not hug you back? Have you ever been in a one-way hug where you're doing the hugging? It's, it's one of the loneliest feelings in the world to hug somebody and, and they're not hugging you back. It's rejection. Money will not hug you back. It will reject you. If not now, then on the day of your death, it will not hug you back. But your family will. Your Father in heaven will. He's the only one worth clinging to. He's the only wealth that a moth can't eat and that... A thief cannot steal. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And he gives us the kingdom. The kingdom. There's this um, story about a Puritan who was offered a slice of bread and a glass of water. And his response was, what? All of this? And Jesus Christ too? He had a good understanding of what it meant to be rich. Our Father gives us the kingdom, and every kingdom is made up of citizens. And that's why Jesus speaks to them not as individuals, but as a little flock, as a community, not as individuals isolated from one another, as a family. The role of a family in crisis is to take one another in, and that's what the role of a church is in crisis, is to take people in, to love one another and to love the city around us. You know, in Luke chapter 15, when the prodigal son, who's now lonely and isolated and poor, after spending all of his inheritance, the father is there waiting for him, and the father provides not a scold, not a shame, but shelter, clothing, he feeds him, he embraces him, he takes, it in, takes him in. The church is our version of that. The church is a place that takes people in. The church is a place that gives until the need is gone. It cares for its own, but the church also cares for its neighbors, especially those in need, as Jesus teaches here. I've been amazed at what uh, the giving impulse, the generosity impulse has been of our church. You know, 2010 was a, a shining season when Christ Pres opened, it, opened its doors and its hearts and its purse to the city of Nashville and also to one another uh, in the floods when people were suffering from the floods. More recently uh, and, 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 and into the future, when it's all said and done, in terms of the resourcing that, that Christ Pres is able because of, of the generosity of so many of you, when you, when you add up the cumulative resourcing that, that this church is able uh, to, to give and, and deploy toward our members in need because of COVID-19 and all the problems that, 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 that are surfacing because of that, and also to our city, to the most vulnerable and, and to those who are in need, it's going to be somewhere in the millions when it's all said and done. And we're so grateful to be part of that. 
That's what the church is. And, and, and the church is actually one of the reasons why Jesus says fear not. Because you have a family. And a family's job, when, when you're in dire straits, when you're struggling, when you're suffering, is to take you in. Give help, get help, whatever your situation. But finally, our true share is immeasurable. And this is very short. Numbers 18, the Lord says, I am your share I am your inheritance. In Lamentations chapter 3, a moment of crisis of its own for the prophet Jeremiah, the Lord comes in and says to him, I am your portion, therefore wait for me. Brothers and sisters, beloved daughters and sons of God, we are in a season of waiting right now. The season of waiting before the Lord always comes with a promise prophet Isaiah amplified it. It says that those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will walk and not grow weary. They will run and not faint. Even though youths grow tired and weary, those who wait on the Lord will not. And part of waiting on him is realizing and reminding ourselves each other over and over and over again that he is all of our wealth. He is all of our riches. We've sung the song that, that Jordan Coughlin wrote many times in our congregation. Alleluia, all I have is Christ. Alleluia, Jesus is my life. Let this be our prayer when we're living in plenty and when we're living in want. Let's pray together. Father, I'm reminded of the closing words from the prophet Habakkuk who living in a time of scarcity where thoughts of being open-handed and sharing must have felt terrifying to most, especially in an agrarian economy that was in a drought and experiencing all kinds of loss. And the prophet prayed, though the fig tree should not blossom nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail and the fields yield no food, and the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's feet. He makes me tread on the high places to the choir master with stringed instruments. Amen. In scarcity, this prophet composed a song for the choir master. In that same spirit, let's sing to our generous and loving provider, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. <laughs>